This is an ABC podcast. How good is Australia? Wishful thinking of the Labor Party. I don't know anything at all about conversations that Scott Morrison has had with Donald Trump. A shameful and pathetic attempt. That is such a bubble question. I'm just going to leave that one in the bubble. Hello and welcome to another episode of your favourite politics podcast, The Party Room. I'm Fran Kelly from Insiders. And I'm Patricia Carvellis from RN Drive. Fran, good to see you after our mini break. It was just a week. Let's not yeah. over it, really. Like, really, but, I saw you anyway. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. But quite a lot happened while we're away for that one week. It wasn't as quiet as we'd probably hoped. Well, we actually thought, no, it should be a quiet week. Mm. We can let it go. And then all week we kept saying to each other, we really should have done a podcast this week. There's a lot going on. And there was a lot going on. That's right. So there was a major international story that involved a phone call, of course, between the US President and our Australian Prime Minister, Scott Morrison. No big deal. Nothing to see here. And we will talk about that in a second. We will recap on that because it's sure it's been reported on. Because it's irresistible. And it's ongoing. Yes. And irresistible. And irresistible. So the biggest story in town this week, though, was a foreign one. Yeah, that's right. This is the um, US President, Donald Trump, basically giving the green light to the um, Turkish President, um, Recep Tayyip Erdogan, that the US was going to pull out of Syria. So they've had Syrian forces in there who've been working with the Kurdish forces. The background to this is the Kurds have a long, long, long time animosity with the Turks. The Turkish government sees them as terrorists. Um, But they have been, the SDP, this is the Turkish forces, have been working with the United States. Now, the US is pulling out, and uh, that was kind of news to everybody, really, that that was going to happen so immediately. And almost immediately, within two days, the Turkish forces have moved in. They've started bombardment. Some Kurdish forces have been killed and uh, it's it's all on. And it's almost like Donald Trump didn't realise that was what was going to happen once he said, yes, we're going to move the troops out. But the interesting thing was after he said yes, some of those troops moved immediately, PK. So it's almost like this was, there was a heads up on this, though it's certainly taken um, a lot of senior Republicans, Democrats and some of the US generals and allies by surprise. Australia's Defence Minister was still saying, you know, 24 hours later, we're still waiting for a briefing on this. There's no doubt that the whole world was taken by surprise. And clearly Australia is a very close ally of the United States. The Prime Minister has just had this state visit to the United States and, you know, the bromance began and yet it didn't look like we got any particular heads up as far as I can see about this. Although the Prime Minister initially, and this is, I think, fascinating, seemed to defend Trump. Now, this is fascinating for many reasons, one of them being the bromance, but also because senior Republicans even denounced the president. Senior Republicans who've been defending him in the face of impeachment all of a sudden took a different tune. Mitch McConnell was one of them and said, hang on a minute, we are very concerned about this troop withdrawal. That's right. So our Prime Minister came out and said, well, this is perfectly consistent with what the US President's been saying for a year. And on that very same day, our Foreign Minister was saying something a bit different to that, certainly saying, well, you know, individual nations have the right to their relationships. Um, but Maurice Payne made a point of saying that we should be, um, you know, have respect for the Kurdish fighters who've been working with with us. And she said, uh, our challenge is to keep working with the United States where they are present and our other international allies to help prevent the further spread of Daesh or ISIS and making the point that the Kurds have been steadfast and reliable partners. They have been very steadfast and reliable partners for the international coalition. And we should never forget that they've suffered significant casualties during their counterterrorism operations. So our Prime Minister and the Foreign Minister seem to be at odds. They're sort of now moving backwards 
towards each other. Yeah, so we're recording this on a Thursday morning. The Prime Minister has spoken and the Prime Minister has said Australia is deeply concerned about Turkey's actions in Syria now. Uh, Mr Morrison has said Australia has been in direct contact with the Turkish and the US governments. We are also very concerned about what this could potentially mean for the Kurdish people. We're concerned about what this may mean for the potential for the resurgence of Daesh. So that's the Prime Minister and it's making it quite clear that, that he is concerned and saying the government is concerned about what it could mean for the Kurdish people, of course. And as you said, Fran, they are allies and they have been key in this struggle at containing ISIS. And, they defeated ISIS. And But now it looks like there could be, and the Prime Minister's even said it, that there is a potential resurgence of Islamic State. Now that is... Well, the that issue is diabolical. Here, well, that's right. The issue here is, yes, um, ISIS has been defeated and Donald Trump came out and said that. That was because of the fighting of the SDF, the, the Kurdish fighters. But the issue here is there's over 70,000 uh, former ISIS fighters or their wives, partners, children in camps within Syria and some in Iraq too, but in Syria. They've already been organising. You know, those close to this PK say ISIS is not dead. As soon as the Kurdish fighters leave those camps, which they they're now protecting and go to fight the Turks, those ISIS fighters will be unguarded, they will be at large again and they will become a threat. Now, not perhaps the threat to develop a caliphate again, but a threat of terrorist activity. And we should all be concerned about that. So let's go to that last week conversation where Australia was dragged into the impeachment controversy uh, unfolding in the US. Uh, reports emerged that our own Prime Minister was pushed to help uh, the Attorney General in the US with a probe into the origins of the Mueller investigation. Yeah, lots of things happened. New York Times reported it and then everyone went crazy here in Australia. The Prime Minister pretty much confirmed it, said, yep, there was a, the, we, I did have a conversation with the President. And then the letter was released, Fran, showing that actually Australia via Joe Hockey, had offered to help before that phone call between... So that was way back in May when yeah. Australia via Joe Hockey said, yes, we stand ready to help, and this phone call didn't happen until September. Um, so why did we need the phone call from the president saying, will you help? It's very... He needed a point of contact, of, I think, Fran. below his pay grade, I would have thought. He needed a contact. Yeah, that's right. He needed a contact. Hey, Scott, do you have a contact it seemed me? a little odd, the language of a contact, um, given the sort of machinery around government. But, you know, let's just... All right, Okay. So now, of course, yes, we've said we're going to help. It seems that Scott Morrison make, has made it as clear as he possibly can, in my view, that's my analysis, correct me if you think I'm wrong, that we're not enthusiastic about um, declassifying or sharing the cable that Alexander Downer sent to Canberra with this information. But either way, we're in it, right? We're in a domestic probe now. I do think, though, that the Prime Minister or the government was in a pretty difficult position. What do you do Look, you know, when an ally asks for help? Because this is an official government probe. He is the elected President of the United States. No, that's right. Of course, the, our Prime Minister takes the call. Of course, Australia stands ready to help our ally. But given this was such a, you know, hard-fought domestic political issue, this whole inquiry, I think you could sort of get some advice from those who have been around the traps for a while and, and one of those is former Ambassador John McCarthy who said, look, what you probably would have been wise to do was say, we'll get our lawyers to talk to law your lawyers and we'll sort it out and that means we can put barriers around the help we give. When it's leader to leader like this, mind you, Donald Trump put Scott Morrison in a very difficult position by making the phone call and presumably that's why, you know, I think we needed to deal with it, put some caveats in there, as the Foreign Minister Maurice Payne then started to do, saying we will give what help, the help that is appropriate. That's right. So it all does centre around our former High Commissioner to the UK, Alexander Downer, and he communicated concerns to the FBI and former 
about former Trump advisor George Papadopoulos reportedly telling him about, you know, Moscow having incriminating dirt about Hillary Clinton in May 2016, for those who are not across that detail. Now Australia has been very much defending Alexander Downer. Well, because the US have gone have gone for him. Lindsey Graham, that senior Republican senator you mentioned earlier, um, he wrote a letter to our Prime Minister basically saying Alexander Downer, in his view, had been directed by the Clinton campaign to essentially dig up dirt and get this going. I mean, that's an outrage. That's outrageous suggestion about a long-serving foreign minister of Australia, don't you think, and a person who was acting as high commissioner to Britain, um, that they were essentially working as a spy to try and keep Donald Trump out of the White House. That's the suggestion, and our government has pushed back, as they should have. Uh, That's right, and it's an incredibly difficult situation for Australia to manage, I think, this whole one. But, you know, we've said we're going to be involved. We're in it now. We're in it, right, and what that involves and how we manage it. I'm sure there are a lot of people in the Department of Foreign Affairs and the Prime Minister's Department and very senior diplomats working on just how to do this right now. Maybe Uh, with a few phone calls from Alexander Downer. I wonder how Alexander Downer's feeling, actually. I don't think he was certainly caught on the hop when asked um, on RM Breakfast. I don't know anything at all about conversations that Scott Morrison has had with Donald Trump that I'm afraid... Uh, these days is not the sort of thing that I'm privy to. He said, I can't keep talking about it. I've got nothing more to say. I didn't do it. It's not what happened. This guy said it. I did my job. I, I reported it back to uh, Australian intelligence, you know, through diplomatic cables. But there are questions about whether he did it unofficially as well. And then he, he then he did it directly, directly to the to US. The um, but I also wonder whether Alexander Downer doesn't say, look, just release the cable. It's fine. Just clear my name. Just show him what happened and get it done. I don't know. I haven't asked him, but um, he's certainly sounding a little frustrated by it all. Just a tad. (laughs) Mark Kenny, columnist and senior fellow at the Australian Studies Institute at the ANU. Welcome to the party room. Thank you, PK, and thank you, Fran. Mark, it's been quite an interesting week. It's been the week of the ex-Prime Ministers, hasn't it? We've had John Howard. We've had Tony Abbott. We've had Malcolm Turnbull. We've even had Julia Gillard out and about in Britain. There's been a lot of ex-Prime Minister stuff going on. Yeah, there certainly has. This is mostly around uh, the 75th anniversary of the, uh, or the birthday, I suppose, of the uh, Liberal Party and uh, a series of interviews that Troy Bramston's done um, for the Australian with uh, with these former, mostly Liberal Prime Ministers, obviously, uh, talking about that anyway. And so that's why we've had a number of comments from, from them, you know, Scott Morrison nominating ANZUS as the most important thing that the Liberals have done and uh, Malcolm Turnbull uh, admitting that or conceding that uh, he, you know, failure to land an energy and climate policy was one of his biggest regrets. We've had Tony Abbott saying some pretty interesting things, like he doesn't even think knighting Prince Philip was a mistake, uh, and that Great he idea. would like to. Yeah, look, it went so well uh, when he did it uh, back in 2015, and he's sticking by it. Uh, which is pretty extraordinary and, of course, uh, also suggesting that if his colleagues were up for it, he'd be up for coming back too. So, yeah, some pretty interesting stories there. Just on that, that that was the best line for me out of the Tony Abbott interview. What, you know, would he consider a comeback? Well, if, you know, if my colleagues were interested in it, yes, I would, but I don't expect it to happen. It's a form of words. It's a well-travelled form of words, isn't it? Did you read anything into that, Mark? Well, I, I guess there's not much to read into it beyond what it says, which is effectively I'm here to uh, to take 
take over. I'm here to sort of fix up the Liberal Party. I don't think the Liberal Party is travelling too badly at the moment, <laughs> having won an election that couldn't, uh, you know, couldn't possibly imagine winning, uh, you know, just uh, months beforehand, just days beforehand, really. So uh, I think the uh, the government's travelling pretty well. The coalition's looking pretty solid, and uh, it's Labor that's uh, on the ropes. So. Uh, I can't imagine the circumstances no. where the colleagues would get together and say, yeah, let's go back to the days of Tony Abbott because that was all so smooth and uh, successful. And to be fair to Tony Abbott, I don't think he was pitching himself forward necessarily, but, you know, if you see a chance, just take it, um, as they say. Um, well, but, it's honest, I guess, in that sense. I mean, yeah. you know, the, the point is he, he didn't want to go. He was voted out by his electors. Uh, you know, he was uh, on the outside in the party room, but um, the, the real party room as distinct from this podcast. <laughs> but, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's a Lifer. He's one of those people who believes yeah. his uh, his place should be in Parliament. And so what he's saying is, you know, in truth, if I had the opportunity, I'd go back. Yeah, and it was interesting that he's still, his version of what went wrong was basically Malcolm Turnbull's naked ambition and there was no getting over it. Tony Abbott was the hurdle and therefore Malcolm had to knock it down. And Malcolm Turnbull, in his interview um, with Troy Branston, saying, you know, Yes, I failed to land a climate policy, but his view on that is that's due to the denialists within the coalition. And as long as they are there, this was really his parting shot when he left the job too. As long as they are there, they will never land an energy policy. And so far he's been proven correct. He has. And of those two versions, you'd have to say that Turnbull's is, uh, is, the, is the more realistic one. Abbott blaming Turnbull and Turnbull's vaulting ambition for the, for the failure of the Abbott government, I don't think there's too many people I've spoken to, uh, and I'd be interested in both of your views as uh, observers of this, but I, I don't know anyone who holds to that view. Turnbull was uh, obviously ambitious. Uh, he wanted to be Prime Minister. It's why he hung around after initially deciding to resign from Parliament back in 2009 when he lost the leadership when he he was running the opposition. Uh, he, he eventually hung around. He decided to stay there and give it a second shot, mainly because he harboured that ambition of one day being Prime mm. Minister. All of that's true, but he did not scheme against Tony Abbott, and no-one's really saying that he did. He certainly wasn't on a sort of a serial undermining process that uh, Turnbull himself underwent at the hands of Tony Abbott and others in the in the right of the party. So, I think it was more of a case of he exploited Tony Abbott's own mismanagement of his own government. I my, think he my, did seize the opportunities. I think he, he seized the opportunity, but that's do. different from saying bring he brought it about. My view is that Turnbull acted a bit like a sort of a corporate raider at that point. He thought that Tony Tony Abbott's leadership was unviable. Mm. He thought that he was essentially trading while insolvent, but that he had to fall over on his own mm. merits under his own sort of the collapse under the weight of his own contradictions rather than be pushed because whoever pushed him was going to carry the blame for that and he'd seen that happen in Labor. So I think to that extent, I mean, people criticise Malcolm Turnbull's political judgement, but I think his judgement about the viability of Abbott's leadership ongoing was, was pretty sound and he was quite patient about it and when they got to that 30 news polls and you had the debacles of 2015, you know, beginning with the knighting of Prince Philip and the empty chair challenge and all of those other things. And, of course, the gay marriage issue that had become, you know, the subject of that seven-hour party room meeting and the confused position and everything else. I think all of that ended up making Tony Abbott's leadership unviable and it's at that point that, yes, uh, Malcolm Turnbull did, uh, did pounce and he pounced with uh, great, you know, force and alacrity and success, but I don't think you could say that he undermined Abbott. Abbott undermined himself. Mm. 
And then there was another former leader, not a former Prime Minister. He never made it to Prime Minister, as we record on a Thursday morning. Uh, and that's Bill Shorten. And he did a pretty big sit-down interview, too, with the Herald Sun newspaper, where he said he, you know, he doesn't still want to be Prime Minister. He wants to be in politics for another couple of decades. And then took full responsibility for the election loss. Uh, so, you know, it has been sort of the week of ex-leaders as well, if you like, Mark. What did you make of Bill Shorten's recalibration or getting on the front foot is how I see it? You know, he knows that this Labor review is looming. Clearly, I know all of his colleagues think he himself was a huge problem and a big electoral mm. issue. And so he's trying to get out and go, yep, I know I'm taking responsibility uh, rather than trying to blame everyone else. That's the optics here uh, because mm. he obviously is trying to reframe himself. What did you think of it? Yeah, I think you're right. I think that's pretty much uh, uh, perfectly encapsulates the position he's at at the moment. You know, he knows he, he can't get out from under this. Uh, he was the leader. He was the opposition leader for two terms, which is pretty uh, uncommon in itself. Uh, and, you know, the Labor Party stuck with him. Admittedly, the rules had changed to make it harder to, to remove leaders and, they'd, they'd, you know, they'd worn all the opprobrium from, from doing that serially. But uh, the party did stick with him despite knowing that he was never a popular leader and that he was probably a handbrake on their vote. The judgment they made was that uh, the support for Labor you know, and, the, and the lack of popularity of the leader had already been priced in and that the support for Labor was still there. Um, that turned out not to be the case and it turned out to be one of the great vulnerabilities of, of Labor that uh, had had a very unpopular leader. So you're selling a big platform of ideas with an unpopular leader. That's a really bad combination. Now, I think Shorten's doing the only thing he can really do at this stage. He's fessing up to that. He's acknowledging that uh, the buck stops with him, which everyone's going to say anyway. I think he's trying to take a bit of the news sting out of that when the uh, when the review eventually lobs and uh, is, is is discussed more uh, more publicly and more directly. And the blame is actually officially directed towards him. He, he'll be able to say, "Well, you know, I've been saying that for for weeks, for months. Uh, you know, I it's think, an obvious thing." I think too, getting the message out that he doesn't have leadership ambitions anymore, as he said again later this week, "I've hung up my political running shoes," mm. is important because leaders sticking around lead to the narrative that they're looking over the shoulder. And Anthony yeah, Albanese, yeah. you know, that's already there in the ether, that narrative. And if you want to have a profile as a former leader, if you want to be able to be effective in any policy sense, and if you want to get runs on the board, because even if you do in your heart harbour a comeback, you need to be able to have some clear air so that everything you say is not seen in that in that prison. Because if, if that happens, then they're again on the spiral to failure. So he, he he's doing what he can to try and change that dynamic. It's a hard one to change. You're right. I mean, the fundamentals are there and being an ex-leader, there's always going to be that question. I mean, you can't harbour that uh, ambition and husband it so ferociously for and six unity. years. And unity. That's right. And, and all of that doesn't just simply evaporate. Now, it's been obviously a huge psychological blow for him. And I think it's a credit to him that uh, if he is deciding to hang around, that he's throwing himself into uh, front bench duties uh, rather than sort of sulking on the back bench and, uh, you know, sort of uh, licking his wounds in a, in, a, in a sort of a pointless way that may lead to dysfunction down the track. He's, on the other hand, he's sort of said, well, you know, I'm in politics for the long haul. He's kind of going, coming out on the front foot and saying... I like being in Parliament, I like being in politics, I like being in public life, this is what I'm now going to do. My only problem with all of this is that, and I thought this you know, going way back in, at, to 2013, is that they did it the wrong way around. I mean, Albanese was the formed next cab off the rank, in my view, in 2013. He was certainly the popular choice of uh, Labor Party rank and file members, as we know. 
uh, and he was the older man, he was the more experienced minister, all of those reasons. They should have gone to Albanese then. He would have been a very interesting foil for Tony Abbott because uh, there, there were sort of uh, street fighter similarities to, their, to the way they operate. And if it worked, that would have been fine. It would have given shortened time to prove that he could actually be loyal because he came in, of course, to the leadership, you know, carrying the baggage of mm. having flip-flopped with uh, support for Rudd and Gillard at various different times. And so Shorten does have, I think, um, something to prove in terms of being solid, not being a schemer, being loyal uh, and giving, uh, you, you know, uh, delivering unity to the new leader. So we're just going to have to see how that goes. Well, as he said this morning to John Fain, um, you can be a leader, not the leader. So there you go, a leader, not that leader. Look, I want to move to the big <laughs> theme of the week. I mean, there's been a few themes, obviously the international theme and this troop withdrawal in northern Syria is a huge story. But there, there's another one and that's climate, climate, climate. OK, so we're seeing mm. the Extinction Rebellion protests and destruction disruption and lots of kind of commentary from different MPs about all of that and what it means. And then, whoa, talk about putting a bomb through your party. Joel Fitzgibbon, the Shadow Minister for Agriculture, goes to the Sydney Institute and says that uh, Labor should do what I call a bit of a me too, uh, match the coalition's climate change ambition, the high rent, 28% reduction, and... Holy dooly, there's a bit of a uh, split in the Labor Party over this, Mark. I can tell you that from like my own research. I've spoken to several people. They are filthy with Joel Fitzgibbon for saying this. They say that it's caused enormous damage, but he has some supporters too. Well, he does have some supporters. Uh, there are plenty of people who think that, you know, the, the climate position that they took to the election, their very ambitious uh, 45% cut was uh, just uh, was you know just too hard to defend, that it made them look extreme, that it made them look anti-worker, that put them into an impossible position on things like Adani. You know, they lost in the regions, they lost in the mining states, it's all well known. So there are people who are worried about, you know, what is going to be the position take, you know, they take forward and uh, there is a school of thought, not a particularly wide one that I've detected, I might say. I mean, Joel Fitzgibbon's obviously of this view, but there's a school of thought that, uh, you know, if they could, might as well just tuck in behind the coalition, they've sort of forced them into this position and um, and just essentially say, well, well, we'll do what the higher end of what the coalition's proposing to do, but we'll actually do it as distinct from fail to deliver because we know, you know, aggregate emissions are going up. But uh, yes, the, the reaction to that uh, across most of the Labor Party and certainly across a good deal of the Labor Party's city constituency is to be appalled. Yeah. Uh, I've picked up certain anger about that. Well, the problem is, and Joel Fitzgibbon sort of signalled this a few weeks back and didn't quite get the bump out of it he wanted, I think, so he's gone to the Sydney Institute to put it up in lights um, to make sure it got noticed. But the problem is that the 26 to 28% target that is Australia's official target under Paris, if every country in the world did that, mm. would get us to three degrees warming. That is extinction revolution, <laughs> extinction rebellion. Um, so it's not good enough. So Labor can't, with any credibility, say they are committed to the Paris agreement. No, that's right. And committed to action, real action on climate change if we're going to be satisfied at three degrees. So they can't really do that. So Joel Fitzgibbon's point is about trying to close down the politics of it and stop making Labor a target for those who are worried about radicals and radical action costing them their jobs. But, you know, you've got to have some credibility too. Well, you do, but I think Joel Fitzgibbon's also looking at his own seat and he's thinking, you know, when you see a 14% collapse of your primary vote and what was it, a 21% 
can't vote for One Nation in that seat. Mm. I mean, it's uh, he, he's obviously got a, he's got a seat that's in the coal mining heartland of New South Wales. It's a you know he's one of very few Labor members that actually has a regional seat and has you know actual uh, coal miners uh, you know as constituents. And so I think there's a there's a fair bit of, of that here. You know, it's not necessarily yeah, but isn't that the time he's going to be to, taken. The, the, isn't the action required not to d- deny major changes needed, but to start talking about how the change might look and how people, rather than losing yeah. all their jobs, we can transition to a different economy, a renewable energy sector where we lead the world and the jobs will be created and start looking at transition, really talking honestly about the challenges here because a lot of people working in the coal mines don't think the coal mines are going to be around forever because their companies are telling them they're not going to be. So I just think we need to get real. I agree. I, and I think that's often been the problem with these sorts of you know hinge moments, these big trans, transition moments for societies and economies, that um, those advocating change uh, don't do enough in in terms of um, accommodating and and handling the you know the victims of those of those changes and that was really the case as you remember Fran back in the 90s with Paul Keating talking about the big picture and the you know the international opportunities the globalism and so forth it it, it was uh, inspiring to a lot of voters but to many other voters it was absolutely scary and particularly in the case of those people who were living in uh, you know electorates where factories were closing down mm. running employment was rife where uh, the you know the collapse of you know the removal of tariffs and everything else had eviscerated local industries and we saw out of that for example the, the first arrival of Pauline Hansen in the seat of Oxley we also you know, saw how it's battlers which are probably the equivalent of Scott Morrison's quiet Australians yes exactly so you know there were many good things that were being done by the government then but the people who were and in fact for the most part the natural constituency of labor who were the victims of those rapid changes were not being accommodated and I I thought that was actually one of the more interesting things. I think it was Will Hogan who wrote recently in an op-ed that the money that's being amassed now in in budget surpluses that the government's talking about, he was advocating that not so much of that money should be used in the traditional sense to stimulate the economy, but to directly compensate losers from transitions in the economy. And I I, I think there's a lot to be said for Mm. that sort of thinking, that you get a, a stimulus out of it anyway, but also you actually use the extra capacity you have in the budget to drive the reform process that changes the fundamentals of the economy and the society. So that, I mean, because it's a pretty ridiculous idea when you think about it to be saying to people in Townsville or any of these places where they they have a, a strong mining base to their economy that you should be happy about these changes even though there's no future in them for you. Yep, that's not going to get you far, is it, politically? Yeah, well, that's no, clearly sure. didn't. It's <laughs> clearly didn't. called the election <laughs> and we've seen how that worked out. Mark Kenny, it's been a pleasure to have you in the party room. Thanks for coming in. Thanks very much. Enjoyed it greatly. See you, Mark. It's time for question time. We have an audio question, which is exciting because we can hear the voice of Nikki. Hi, Fran and PK. Nikki here. My question is about the role and expectations of the Prime Minister's partner. In Scott Morrison's relatively short tenure as Prime Minister, his wife has already joined him on a number of international and domestic tours. I wonder, what did Jenny Morrison do before becoming the Prime Minister's wife? Did she have to give up personal ambitions to perform this role? Do we as Australians really expect the Prime Minister's partner to attend work functions and meetings? It doesn't happen in other workplaces. I'm interested in your thoughts. Thanks and love the podcast. I think it is a really fascinating question because I think when you are a president or a prime minister or, you know, a leader of a country, 
there are requirements about your participation to go to, you know, these international events or big functions. There just are. Now, whether that's a convention that someone should smash apart, I suppose it depends on a, a future former spouse or partner and whether they want to be rebellious and say, hey, I'm busy with my big career. I don't want to go to the US trip. But Historically, at least, even the women who have historically had big careers, um, I mean, we know that... Therese Rain. Yeah, Therese Rain, who's Kevin Rudd's wife, had a big career, absolutely. Which she maintained. She absolutely maintained, but she did divest, remember, in the Australian elements of her businesses because that, you know, so she had to make a change Mm. in and of itself because Kevin Rudd rose to the prime ministership. There is a kind of compact often in those relationships where it's like, hey, my partner's risen to the highest office in the land and this is part of the requirement. Now, is it problematic? Well, I suppose it can be, Fran, because often it's women that play these roles, right? So you can't help but glaringly notice that it is women because it's only, we've only had one female prime minister. But I suppose in a world where that wasn't the case, you'd still see partners playing this role. Yeah, I mean, it's a partnership and I'm sure uh, one partner isn't making the decision to go for leader of the nation without talking to the other partners. So there would be these discussions going on, what that would mean. It's for the spouse, I think, to lead uh, how they want to live their lives, as Therese Rain clearly did, um, as Cherie Blair did to some degree in, in the UK, as Hillary Clinton did when she started off being head of a department. Remember, she had a big pro- Project Health, I think, going on and was running the health budget for a while there, though that didn't go so well for her and she got a lot of criticism for that. Um, so these things are fraught. Uh, it is breaking down barriers and there is, I think, as a, as, a, as a taxpayer, a requirement that sometimes on certain events our leader is represented with their spouse because that's what, you know, that's the level of it, say, to the to the palace or something in Britain, those are requirements of the job and they come, you know, you get positives and you get negatives with doing these jobs. But then I'm a bit old-fashioned. You see, personally, I think our leaders should be living in the lodge and they should be living at Kirribilli. I don't think they should be living in their own personal houses or anything like that. So I think there are some national trappings that come with this and that's part of the job. But yes, you're right, PK, it's usually the women and therefore we've got this whole gender debate about how much women give up for their husband's career. And there's a question too from Tracy, who's used the hashtag The Party Room. Thank you, Tracy. I love it when it's used by other people, not just me. The Libs went to the election boasting about a supposedly strong economy and their strong economic management credentials. Now the economy is plummeting and we hear barely a peep out of Labor. Where are they? Tracy, I reckon they're, they're quite active, yeah, actually. Yeah, I actually don't think that's fair, Tracy. I think Jim Chalmers, who's the shadow treasurer, is is really one of the shadow ministers that has rebounded quite quickly from the election loss and is out on the front foot um, over the economy all the time, pointing out there's you know low growth, low wages growth, low productivity, uh, employment is not trending down. Um, there are all the signs that the, the confidence has been lost in this economy and no matter how much the government says it's the other, um, the low interest rates, uh, now historic lows and other indicators are showing it's not. So Jim Chalmers has been really out there, I think, taking the fight up to them. Maybe it's just that the electorate is not that ready to hear messages from the opposition yet. Yeah, I think I think they've been trying to get those lines up, but it's difficult right after an election loss. But either way, I mean, the government's constantly quizzed by journalists about the economic conditions. And I think this is a huge theme for them.
I think that's right. And the Reserve Bank Governor himself is doing his bit to suggest that the government could be and should be doing more. And so I think that's a frustration for the government at the moment. Uh, They're probably sensing there's a bit of a pile on, even if in the general sort of hubbub, it's not sounding that way. And before we go, Fran, um, there was a tweet this week from Jess, who's our... Our founding producer Jess. for the party room. Hey, Jess. Shout, shout out, out to, to Jess. Jess. Um, and, of course, we've got the lovely Leona now. But Jess tweeted that we almost called the party room Polywaffle, but then we didn't. Why didn't we? I, can't, I don't know. It's a terrible name. It maybe. is a terrible name. Don't, That's what don't I thought. Don't call your podcast Polywaffle. Yeah. But then she says... Because waffle is generally not a very attractive kind of term. No, if you we want don't, you don't want to waffle, right? But... Then we came up with the party room, or someone came up with the party It was all a big brainstorming session. I'm certainly not going to take credit. But then Fran and I were worried that the pun was partisan and we had to convince them, we as in the producers, mm. that no normal listener knew that only one party had a party room. And, of course, because Labor has a caucus. Labor I remember being caucus. very concerned about this. That's right. So I, thought, I, I don't do want to look like we're just being pro the coalition because it's a party room. How about Labor? They have a caucus. They don't have a party room. And everyone said to us that we were... Yeah. Yeah, back off, forget it, kids, drop it. That we'd lost our minds. (laughs) And then I apparently said that that's why we need this podcast. And we still need this podcast. We do, to bring people into, inside the political tent. That's right, to explain explain these stupid things like that, which is that Labor has a caucus and no one cares what they're actually called apart from you and I, Fran. All right, that's it. Um, If you want to say anything to us, use the hashtag thepartyroom or email us at thepartyroom at abc.net.au. Rate, review, subscribe, you know the drill. Just do it. See you, PK. See you, friend. I get the point, though. I mean, I I get the point. Like, I'm, you know, I'm a feminist. I get the point. I get the point. I get the point. I so get the point. You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.